I'm Roger Miller, and this is Collective Mass Radio. Welcome to Collective Mass Radio number 12. We've got a great show lined up for you here today. We're going to be talking to the guys from Fract, which is an audio-based game. Uh, it's really beautiful, all built in Unity, um, made by three three people. Um, husband and wife team and another guy. Uh, really cool stuff. All of the developers are interested in music, so and it really shows in the game. It's very, very cool. Um, but before we get started, let's just chat about the week's events. I mean, it's been E3, lots of amazing things going out there. I took a walk around the show floor and uh, really humbled some beautiful stuff and always blown away by all the exhibits. Uh, the Indicate stand was really cool. Cool to see a couple of uh, Unity games there. A lot of stuff for PlayStation 4. It looks like that market is doing well. Uh, but one of the best things that I saw there was Broforce. It's really good to see they... Um, Hooked up with Devolver, the publisher, and good to see them punting their works. And uh, also good to see South African game developers representing. Well done. Uh, game looks beautiful. All done in Unity. All pixel art uh, looks smooth. Um, it's all greenlit and ready to go. So, um, And I know a lot of people are, are can't wait for this game. The multiplayer code seems to be their biggest um, roadblock right now. But I know that they're working through it. They've got really smart guys there. Uh, the pity the Unit stuff isn't up and running. But um, I'm sure Unity will be working hand in hand with them to get the game out. Um, a couple of other bits and pieces. Uh, thank you very much to Unity for 4.5. The shader compilation with the logical error messages in the editor is such a help. Uh, it's really, really useful. Um, I couldn't believe it when I first saw it, but yeah, it's been helping me get my shader stuff out done a lot quickly than before. Quick heads up, uh, I use um, 2D Toolkit um, and have a lot of atlases. Um, I've had a couple of crashes, well, quite frequent crashes with Unity. I don't think it's uh, 4.5 related. Um, if you have too many textures, just building the resources, there's a memory leak somewhere. Best thing that I've been able to do to solve that problem is to just, instead of appending, uh, when you compile to iOS, just replace. It seems to work. Build and run seems to work better than just building, but no clear clear way around that. Other news is uh, the GAF Flash Converter just released their new version for Unity. So this is supposed to have a lot of the fixes that I talked about uh, last week all built in. Once again, great Flash animation conversion tool to Unity. Really good. And I'm hoping that they got their um, draw call rate down uh, with their new version. They, the guys have assured me that they have. Then, as you know, I have been working on a game with my wife called Notespace. It's an interactive um, musical activity book for kids. Um, and it uh, <laughs> is a lot of work, really interesting stuff. Each page is different. And so we've been pushing Unity to the limit using 2D stuff. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to talk about this week, I've been working on particles. And one of the things that um, I found out about particles is you can add animation components to emitters and sub-emitters, which I had no idea. So if you want to get really cool like spiral particle effects and all that kind of stuff, you can just slap on an animation component. Be aware to make sure that you're using the... Um, the local or, or world space, depending on what you want to do. And you're not able to nest those things under other game objects. So, you know, with emitters, it has to be under another emitter. But another thing that I saw when I was playing around was wind zones. So um, I think it was Unity 4.3 where particles could be affected by physical... Um, 
uh, I think they're physics emitters or physics systems. And um, I see that particles are affected by wind zones, which are really cool. So if you want to get kind of that oscillating nebula, uh, like nucleus kind of effect, you could just use a wind zone. They're a bit hard to control, honestly. Uh, you have to do a lot of prototyping, but it really makes cool things happen. Um, I guess you can set up a couple of wind zones. They've got a couple of bits and pieces on it. Not to a fay with the wind zones yet, but um, certainly something to look into if you really want to kind of push some of those particle systems that you have, uh, make them do really cool stuff. Another thing that I really wanted to bring up, uh, it's been around for a while, is Substance Designer. So Substance Designer is a tool that allows you to um, create procedurally generated shaders. Um, you can do it as design time or at runtime. It's a completely non-destructible um, workflow, which is really cool for people with like lots of textures and lots of uh, pipelines that use uh, similar methodologies. Um, they've got a whole suite of PBR stuff um, for Unity 5, which is going to be rad. Um, and, um, you know, the, I think they're releasing a, a, an indie bundle with a whole bunch of different surfaces that you can get into. It's a node-based system, so if you're familiar with um, node-based systems for creating shaders, I, I think in, um, in Maya... Max or Unreal, um, you can just plug things together. Great thing about it is that it radically decreases your footprint, um, specifically for web games. So you can have all your procedurally ba based textures instead of having all these big maps. You can have them procedurally um, generated. Now for PC, you can do this runtime, which is rad. Uh, but for mobile, um, you have to bake them out. So you can bake them out at design time, or if you want to keep your footprint down, you can uh, bake it out when the game starts. So at the beginning of a level, in your level loading logic, you can add the, the texture bake. Uh, so it still keeps your footprint down. It's pretty rad. Talking about keeping your footprint down um, to get around the memory leak issue. I've been using 2D Toolkit's um, PNG system, which is really cool. So you can take down, um, you know, like a 16 meg texture down to a couple of couple of K uh, for load time on. I mean, for uh, yeah, for load time only. So it'll reduce your footprint, but your memory will still be um, uncompressed at runtime. Uh, so those are all the cool things that I have uh, for you today. Once again, E3, amazing show this year. Um, really looking forward to all the new indie games coming out. But now on to the podcast with the guys from Fract. Hi, and welcome to Collective Mass Radio. I'm here today with uh, uh, Hank and Richard, uh, the creators of Fract. And um, we're just going to chat to them a little bit about their development experience. First of all, I'd just uh, like you guys to introduce yourself. So, Hank, if you can just um, just give us a little rundown about what you do in the team. Uh, hey, so uh, I'm Hank. I, uh, I worked on sort of uh, the programming of Fract. Uh, so uh, a lot of the game logic stuff, a lot of the audio stuff. Um, yeah. Excellent. And how about you, Richard? Uh, I guess I'm the uh, designer of Fract. I did um, a, the majority of the design, but we all did design as well. So that's uh, it was a three-person job, the design. Uh, but I also did the um, non-musical sound design, uh, the puzzle design, um, all of the all of the assets and animations and stuff. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I mean, I find that's one of the greatest things about indie games is that uh, you get a flavor of everybody's input from a design perspective. Like, not only because it's a small team, but usually that small team is really invested. So it's not like the, the big game companies where you get a programmer who just does shaders and he does nothing else. 
So it's, uh, I think it's really cool. Um, from the puzzle design, what, what, I mean, just the game in general, what uh, inspired you to create this game? Um, well, I think um, a lot of the inspiration just came from just came from music and making music. Um, when I was a, like a teenager, I discovered um, a lot of early electronic music making software like Rebirth and Trackers and stuff like that. Sweet. And uh, there was something just so playful and uh, almost democratizing about these tools that um, kind of anyone could uh, could play around with. Like before that, you needed many thousands of dollars and an entire physical studio <laughs> to make to make music. But some some of this software was by today's standards not accessible accessible, but by uh, by what was available then really really inviting and playful and I always felt like that was something there was something playful and there was a world there and I've always wanted to design um, systems and toys and games or anything really that kind of captured that sense of discovery and exploration and that's what uh, that's kind of what our jumping off point was for Frack. Amazing. Yeah, I can remember the first time I, um, I opened up um, one of the Propellerhead software and there was just a whole bunch of knobs and I'm like, yeah. yes, I can do this. This is awesome. Yeah. Um, and um, so the the visual style as well, what inspired that? Because it's got a very unique feel and it's uh, I think it's beautifully designed. It reminds me a lot of the design that went into Wipeout, um, if you were familiar mm. with those games. Oh, that's that's a really kind compliment because um, the Designers Republic, the the group that did a lot of the art direction for Wipeout, has definitely been uh, kind of in the back of my mind a big inspiration and uh, kind of like yeah, there a lot of their stuff is really amazing uh, and a lot of stuff from that era especially yeah uh, had a big influence on my sort of design aesthetic. Um, but as far as the art direction for Fract goes, it's just. I don't know. I, you know, just there's there's something really uh, beautiful about polygons, and uh, I think um, it's this very it's a very computer it's very computer oriented. Like this sort of aesthetic could only exist in a computer, right. and uh, it's something that I I really am attracted to, and I really like, and I hope other art directors and designers kind of celebrate it because you know. Uh, photorealism is great and all, but I also feel like it's like the lowest hanging fruit of something to aim for in terms of art direction. That's not to say I don't like uh, photorealistic games. They're totally appropriate when they're appropriate, but it's like, I don't know. Why yeah. don't we have this unlimited, we have this pretty much unlimited palette. Why are we, why are we making things that look like the things we see and not the, not make things that haven't been even been imagined yet? Right. I yeah. see that. I don't know if you guys started it, but there seems to be a huge move towards that kind of minimal polygon um, art style now, um, and some really interesting and kind of cool looks coming out of it. Um, I saw a couple of articles on um, on kind of how to create the style, um, just delving a little bit into the technical side of things. Did you guys um, just create the the polys uh, and bake in the colors for, for the uh, vertices on the mesh? Um, or did you do the whole thing in 3D Studio Max? Uh, how did you create it? It's been kind of an evolving process. Uh, I don't know, Hank. Do you do you have a an, do you have an elegant way to explain? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, originally we were doing it kind of just the uh, 
the basic way um, where Richard was coloring uh, um, coloring the stuff uh, mesh by mesh. Right. So uh, we ended up early on with sort of a lot of materials that we quickly realized was completely unwieldy. Um, so um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, I think it was was it uh, was it Devine who showed us the uh, the yeah. new coloring technique? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. So um, a friend of ours, Devin Vivian Vega, uh, showed us a, uh, a technique whereby we, we sort of use a color atlas um, and uh, use UVs to, to move all the vertices along this color atlas. Right. So it makes it very easy to um, to sort of have a managed color palette. I guess, Richard, you can probably talk about what the workflow of that is like. Sure, yeah. I think Kenk described that pretty well. It's basically, we have one texture for the whole game. and. Uh, this one texture is basically a grid of little little color swatches, and we just uh, when I make my assets, I just I just basically drag when I UV them, I just drag those vertices very holistically, like not with much precision, into each of those little swatches to like assign color to right. uh, to parts of uh, to parts of the mesh, and um, yeah, it's it's a way more manageable approach because as Hank said in the beginning. We we're importing like hundreds and hundreds of materials into the project, and uh, and then we kind of reduced it down to a few key ones. So it's like, well, this is the specular material with that with that uh, with that texture, and then we've got the the cube map material, and it's like it's all kind of it all gets held together, and it's uh, really um, kind of non-destructive in a way because you can pop into Photoshop and. It's like okay, well, the pink we're using for that stuff is too subdued, and then we can just change that, and then it concatenates through all the meshes in the world on all the different materials, and it's just like okay, that pink's fixed. So yeah, it was it was we really really big thanks to uh, Devin, uh, also known as Alice Effect. She's done a lot of really cool indie games as well for showing us that technique. Sweet. Yeah, I mean that sounds like an amazing technique. I also like the idea of of just being able to swap out your texture, right? And you can almost interpolate between two color palette textures. You know, mm -hmm. if you're shifting from a day cycle to a night cycle and then adjust your colors accordingly. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that could be done, yeah. Um, excellent. I mean, you guys also have a lot of uh, post-processing on there. I was wondering if you could step through your post-process stack Ooh. quickly. That's Hank. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Hank? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess... Um, the, the first thing is that we had uh, just basic sort of room for a really long time, and that really informed the, the sorts of colors we used in the game. Uh, right. We really try and take advantage of that. Um, but we have kind of this this dual mode of interaction in the game, where where partly you're you're looking around with the first person cursor, exploring, and partly partly you're actually manipulating things with the cursor. Right. Uh, so we needed some way to clearly delineate when you're in one mode versus the other. Mm -hmm. um, so we came up with this sort of like. CRT style effect that um, sort of pulls down a, a, a CRT mask around everything, so you get yep. kind of a little bit of color aberration, you get a little bit of like moray effects, right? Um, and uh, we we use that CRT sort of layer um, to really highlight the uh, the holograms in the world that you're manipulating. So it gave us a really interesting way to um, to divide those two layers visually. Uh, to, uh, to really make that just as clear as possible. That's very, very cool. Um, in making your CRT, did, did you do anything funky, or um, kind of did you take in a, um, a depth texture to do the bending? 
Yeah, so um, I guess uh, the, the sort of blending between the, the background layer and the CRT layer is handled by, by the, the depth texture. Right. So we get this effect where there's kind of a fog in the distance, but the fog is also um, modulating the CRT effect to make it stronger. So you get very clear views of, of close by things and very uh, very sort of harsh views of, of far away things. Very nice. Um, we're also able to kind of mix that really well with a, a source of uh, a random noise. So right. I mean, when you when you shift from one scene to the other, scene, you see the the noise fades in really sharply. Mm -hmm. um, but it's always there uh, in the background, sort of being modulated by the fog. So uh, the farther away you look at something, especially if it's bright, you see it sort of like shimmers in the distance. Uh, yeah, uh, it's, uh, you guys have done a, a, an amazing job just on the whole feel. It's very cohesive, and I really did like that. I remember noticing it uh, in the beginning of the first puzzle when I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I think <laughs> it was like right-clicking, and you're just like, oh, it's a different mode. This is cool. Um, are you guys planning to release for console? Um, I didn't check out your business plan or anything. Um, but uh, we, um, we did discuss it, and I think it was something we did at the time before release. We had planned to dive right into a console port, but release was really tiring, and uh, we're, <laughs> we're taking a break. We, we did really yeah. want to do a console, and I think it's, it's a discussion that we could... Once we caught our breath, I still don't know that we have, but once we we catch our breath, I think it's something we could that's just something we could discuss as a group. But you know, I want to make sure that everyone feels feels you know like like they've got it in them because it's you know it's it's a small team and it's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And um, even if even if I think our technical challenges weren't too bad, but again, that's an unknown because we built a lot of custom tech. Right. Uh, things like just going through cert would be uh, would be just something that I I know emotionally I don't think I, I have it in me to like <laughs> trudge through builds where it's like oh you know the loading icon is ten percent too far to the right for certification like that <laughs> you know that's part of that's part of the process and it has to happen and I think yeah. that's cool I just. I just know personally that I don't know that we have it in us right now to, <laughs> to tackle that. But uh, we'd love to. Yeah, we'd, we'd really love to. I'd love to see Fract in, in living rooms, but we'll see. Yeah. No, I, I, I really hope you do. Um, just before I delve a little bit more into the technical side of things, I did want to t touch on the whole process and like the emotional effect it has on people because uh, a lot of people don't kind of appreciate that. Um, so I'll, how many people are in your team in total? Um, three primarily. Uh, Hank, myself, and my wife, uh, Quinn. Um, we also had some help from uh, uh, sound intern Paul Forey in the beginning. He helped Hank uh, uh, work on some of the pure data and sound stuff. Right. And then we also brought uh, Devin Alice Effect on board, and he helped a lot with the environmental design early in the kind of the world development. Um, so uh, we've had as many as five people on the team, and we've also had some other people helping out with some technical things as well, like. Uh, uh, Joachim, who helped uh, Hank with some technical stuff, as well as uh, some sort of, I don't know what you would call Ethan, a sort of collaborator. He provided some libraries for us that kind of helped out. And, uh, and uh, yeah, but uh, primarily and, uh, the three of us, yeah. Yeah, also, uh, I guess, uh, Mogi for the... Uh, oh, my God, so center. sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I know, yeah, we're focusing on technical. 
yeah but uh, of course alex tam mogi grumbles for uh the music the music design which is uh such a huge part of the game as well right yeah and how long have you guys been working on this and like the what is the the kind of the time pace been like i well, it's been about three years. Uh, yeah, it's been about a three-year development um, with some ups and downs and some heavier sections and some quieter sections as well. Right. But yeah, I'd say about it's been about three years. Yeah, yeah. although uh, it's been three years, but I don't think we ever really realized it was it was uh, it was going to be three years. Yeah. That's very true. It's kind of a it was a sliding time scale. Right. Yeah. And were yeah. you guys working on it part time or full time the whole whole way? Uh, Hank and I were most like Hank and I were pretty full time. My wife Quinn was kind of part time. There was a section where uh, we were kind of running out of money, and Hank went to go work at one of the studios here in Montreal, and he was working just one day a weekend with us while I was working full time on stuff as well. Right. Uh, but uh, it averaged out to pretty much full time between three people uh, for three years. Yeah. Wow. I'm quite sure, and I mean, like, that must have been incredibly emotionally draining for you guys. I mean, like, it's so hard, and specifically when you get to that point where you run out of money, you kind of feel like your hopes are dashed, but you're not ready to give up. Can you can you maybe take the the listeners through um, all the emotional hurdles that you had to go through? <laughs> that would be a four hour podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been. It's been a challenge. A lot of it, a lot of our challenges came from inexperience and just not knowing, not knowing how to do this. And as a result, making mistakes, not knowing they were mistakes, and not embracing mistakes. Because of course, you make mistakes when you make things. It's all, it's all good. Right. Um, but um, I think the the hardest part of us, the hardest part on us, was the time and just the sort of not knowing. Um, we, you know. First, we're like eight months, oh, 12 months, oh, a year and a half. And then, you know, it just kept dragging to the point where it just was exhausting. And we were proud of this thing. And we, you know, we didn't want to see the end of it. Uh, but, like, there are points where, there are points where, you know, it just wasn't hanging together. And that's super depressing. And then, um, uh, like, it was really tough for us to... Um, for Hank having to leave for a while because that kind of implied that like that work wasn't going to be like one day a week Hank was doing all he could but it was yeah you know and that was hard like that was super hard and uh, and we had a baby in the middle which was absolutely Jeez. crazy and uh, yeah we basically we did uh, we yeah it was just it was just super <laughs> yeah. tough there um, was there was kind of this sense of like perpetually being six months from done. Right. Um, uh. From almost the beginning of the project, and uh, <laughs> and it was like it, it felt like the three years was we weren't really prepared for that amount of time, and we uh, we kind of just kept repeatedly having these feelings of oh I guess it's it's not done it's not done and we have to keep it going like it it was a lot of it was a lot of fun like fleshing that out but uh, but yeah it was really draining and it was yeah it was really kind of like discouraging to uh to constantly be faced with the fact that like nope you're not you're not as done as as you think you are yes yeah. yeah. sounds like a trek to mount doom in mordor man <laughs> but i i definitely understand like making games after i was a lot and you try to get things done it's like you get to the point where you love a project so much but you still go, come home and you look at the screen and you just can't do anything 
Yeah. Um, and it's yeah. So well done for like you know keeping it up for three years and getting it out, man. So Thank kudos you. to everyone. Um, so so now, how are you recovering? I mean, you've just released. There's probably bugs that you're fixing and resubmitting. Um, how's that process going? Um, I'll, I mean, I'll let Hank answer. Yeah, Hank should probably answer that. I guess. Yeah. So I mean, I've, yeah, I've been working on uh, for the past. I guess yeah over a month since release on uh, yeah fixing various issues um, starting to take a little bit of a, a break because I realized my mind needs a little bit of a little bit of space to, uh, Lisa, yeah. to get a better perspective um, but yeah it's um, yeah you, it there's this really this sense of uh, the game is the game is out but uh, the work's not done <laughs> all right <laughs> uh, it's a horrible thing I can remember I hated release because it, it felt like you know, like the end, but it wasn't. It was just the beginning. So, um, yeah. but but I, I I mean I think the game has launched pretty in the grand scheme of things pretty smoothly. I know Hank's feeling a lot of pressure to uh, to tackle some of these bugs, but I mean I think I don't have a ton of ton of like data to support this, but I feel like feel like what we released for what it does is is pretty pretty solid. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the uh, the reception's been really great. It yeah. re- really seems like um, kind of what the game is about is really hitting people who are playing yeah. it. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any uh, numbers from kind of a not not financial but downloads? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't really discussed with Quinn if we're really open about that. I mean, I could I could follow up with you. I just uh, I'd rather I'd no rather worries. discuss with Quinn if, if yeah. that's something we want to like broadcast. Yet, uh, no worries. But it's been good though. It's been good. I mean, it it could it could have been a like a hell of a lot worse, uh, <laughs> and it could have been it could have been better too. But I think I think it's I think it's good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, yeah, I hope continued success and we'll uh, um, kind of stop talking about all the emotional trials and tribulations. <laughs> um, now I wanted to talk about the um, the custom audio engine that you guys had, or, or so I was led to believe. Is this true? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And uh, first, how did you choose Unity? I mean, you must have chosen it three years ago, right? So... Yeah, well, actually, the, yeah, the choice of Unity, I think, goes uh, even before the start of Fractal FC. It was, uh, it was Richard who kind of, like, um, sort of started digging into that before I came on the project. Right. Do yeah, I, wanna... built the, I built the prototype in Frac 2 something, and um, uh, I can't... Unity? I can't, yeah, Unity, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Unity 2 something, uh, 2 point something, and, uh, yeah, I couldn't really... I can't really program to save my life, so it was a pretty accessible, uh, accessible tool for me. And specifically, uh, someone told me that it had good Cinema 4D integration. And coming from sort of art direction and motion design, that seemed cool and also kind of rare because Cinema 4D, uh, at least at the time, was a tool no one on the planet was using for game development. Right. Uh, I think it's becoming a bit more popular now, uh, yeah. but ultimately, it uh, yeah, it was. It's all about uh, offline render and all that, and uh, motion graphics and uh, kind of parametric uh, design and blah blah blah. Things that things that uh, 3ds Max and Maya and what have you just do not do. So that was that was a big part of me choosing Unity, and it seemed pretty accessible, and there were lots of good tutorials. And then by the time 
but by the time we decided to do this thing full blown, it seemed like a elegant choice. I mean, mm. there might have been a tiny bit of discussion about doing something custom, but uh, I think I think and Hank could have done it, but I think he just he just uh, maybe weighed his options and saw, saw how non technical it was. <laughs> And was like, hmm, you know, he knows how to use Unity. Maybe, maybe we should keep it keep it as simple as possible. Yeah, I mean, for a, for a really small team, Unity has really, really important uh, advantages um, because it makes it very easy for artists to uh, to integrate their own work rather yeah. than sort of rely on the programmers to do all the integration. Yeah, and when you've only got one programmer, it's uh, that's a huge, huge uh, help. Save yes, and, and uh, actually, I, I I'm uh, I take my hat off to you. I mean, a lot of team. Uh, small teams and specifically small teams with with technical experience to be able to make their own engine choose to do it and um, I take my hat off to you for not just because you know like these days as an indie game company you either choose to write your own game engine or you choose to write your own game but it doesn't (laughs) seem like you have the time to do both so yeah Um, well now that um, we've kind of gotten into how you use how you got to use Unity. Tell us about the cool audio engine you guys got. Yeah, so uh, when we just started development, we were kind of playing around with different ways to uh, to integrate musical aspects into the game. I don't think we'd really decided that we were necessarily going to use synthesis yet, but we knew at least we wanted to uh, allow the players to kind of like compose bits of music and sort of sequence those uh, according to a regular beat. Right. Um, so we were kind of experimenting with different ways to synchronize things in Unity, and I think uh, I think now it would actually handle that pretty well. If you're if you're sort of using just like sampled sounds, I think it allows you to um, to sequence them pretty precisely. But at the time, it didn't seem like there was a good way to do that. So we were kind of looking into alternate options uh, anyway, and uh, it came up that both me and uh, and our audio intern at the time had experience using Pure Data. Which is kind of like a, a performance, uh, a performance, uh, a tool for doing sort of live audio and performances. Right. Um, and um, and we started wondering, hey, is there is there a way we could embed this in the game and uh, actually synthesize all of our um, all of our sounds? Uh, and um, and yeah, that sort of kicked off the uh, that sort of uh, experiment, and uh, it really sort of succeeded. Uh, at doing a lot of the things that we were we were trying to get it to do, mm-hmm. um, but I think I think it it was both uh, it was it was very successful in accomplishing what we wanted, but it was also a hell of a lot more work than we had ever anticipated. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. There was so much power as a result of kind of synthesizing sound in real time that we just sort of kept peeling back the layers of, of what we could control with the game, how the game could react to that, and how we could build puzzles and game around those systems. So it was, yeah, it was constant, constant, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Back so back. kind of from a, from a tech point of view, yeah, there was a huge amount of, of, uh, of effort that sort of had to go on over the whole course of the project. Um, but on top of that, there weren't really established conventions for how you kind of use this control in a game. So there had to be a lot of design iteration, which then had to feed back into the tech iteration to to kind of get the kind of like control and, and functionality right. that we needed. Okay. Well, I mean, like 
that that sounds amazing. It also sounds like it might have been responsible for some of your feature creep. Uh, you guys <laughs> think that you're better off for doing that? Uh, yes, I think definitely. Um, is it responsible for the feature creep? I don't think we can lay it at the bone. I we don't think we can point to the tech. I think there's a combination of things. Uh, it may have contributed to it. Um, yeah, and, I think. Definitely there would have been some stuff, uh, had we not gone this route, the game would have been very different. Because I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the stuff that we're exploring and a lot of the feedback that the player gets when they play would have been uh, basically not possible to do in that way without doing the custom audio engine. Right. Um, that's not to say the game wouldn't have been good. We would have done something uh, completely different, though. I think it would have... I think it, the way that the game had sort of, like, gone or grown over time was very much... Uh, affected by by those decisions right yeah. um and, and how do you think that uh, the audio engine is going to port let's say to to console or wherever you guys want to move it well uh it's it is pretty much i think uh it's one of the two big things that would that would be required for a console port um i guess the other being some kind of like design issues uh you know aside from the uh, the sort of stuff um and yeah, it's it's really hard to know without without trying it. Right. Um, the one the one thing that is kind of nice on console is that um, I think after the port is done, there's more likelihood of it running. I mean, it's basically very likely to run exactly the same on everyone's console, right. which is really which is really nice. On on PC, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of issues where it's like, well, it works on these computers, it doesn't work on those computers, and now we have to figure out why. And it's uh, it's pretty yeah. So. Yeah, it's kind of an unknown. Uh, there's there's going to be things that are harder than on PC, probably. There's also going to be things that are easier. Right. Um, you guys going to wrap that um, that audio engine up as a component for the asset store, make a little more money off of your game? <laughs> so, uh, we, uh, we, I, we discussed a couple options, but uh, I think... Anyway, I'll let Hank, Hank speak. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's something I would totally love to do. Uh, it's... It is. Um, it, it does represent a fair amount of effort, though. Over the course of development, like I had kind of, uh, I'd really wanted to to make it something that I could gift other people and let them use because I'd love to see what other people are able to do with that. Right. Uh, over the course of the game, I mean, as as always happens in the game, uh, the different parts tend to tend to grow roots into each other. Yeah. There's there's things you change about the engine that are specific to the game. There's there's optimizations you do that that won't work in general, but you know will work for, for all the cases in your game. Right. Uh, so it's hard to it's hard to see what the what the clearest path to doing that would be. So it's, it's very much like it's it's on my mind. But, uh, it's, <laughs> there's not a there's not a clear um, plan for it. Right. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people will make some pretty funky stuff with it. You guys excited for the Unity Five Audio Engine? I haven't really read about it. Uh, is, is it completely custom, or is it like, is it a, is it a, an F mod upgrade? Like, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what the deal is. As far as I know, they rewrote everything. Um, so um, I don't think I don't know if it still uses F mod, but um, I, I think it's. A, I know that it is a full rewrite, and it's one of their biggest selling points. Well, yeah. I think it was needed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Judging from judging from like um, kind of the state of audio engines that I've kind of done research in, not that recently, 
seems like there's kind of a way of doing things, um, and I suspect it's that way. Right. And, and I think that's great for the type of sound design that's happening now, but equally, I think, uh, I think there needs to be other kind of alternatives for how to make sound and music for games, because ultimately, like, I, it just it just seems like uh it just seems like it's another scenario where there's musicians that are essentially writing samples or stems and they can be the, on the other side of the world and not really integrated in the project in a meaningful way and uh i don't know that makes me maybe i'm being a little bit uh, militant here but it's a little i i feel like the state of sound uh sound engines and games is kind of sad uh so maybe maybe I'm, but maybe i'm being a little reactionary no, I mean, I, like, yeah. I, I, I concur just from the, the point of, you know, whenever we make a game, sound is always the last thing anybody worries about, right? Everything's working, you're like, oh, shit, we need to put sound in. Okay, quickly, we've got a week before release. Um, and it's kind of, yeah. it is kind of upsetting since, you know, I think the statistic is that sound makes up uh, 75% of um, your perception of a place. So, um, yeah, I agree. You were going to say something, Mr. Hank? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I was just gonna echo Richard, I guess. Like the, um, I haven't, I haven't followed like specifically what's coming in the Unity Five engine, but um, yeah, it's it's a little, just in general, it's a little disheartening to see the the limited ways in which people are integrating sound into the into the actual workflow. Um, but I'm very, I'm very optimistic for it to get better over time. Right. Yeah, that's tr- that's true. And I and I having interacted with some of the sound people at unity they're great people and they you know everyone everyone wants to make things more flexible and have more control i think it's just kind of the way the kind of the system of doing sound in games has evolved like the same way graphics has kind of evolved in a kind of weirdly linear way more polygons more textures more ways to 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 just do that i think yeah we're yeah. it's kind of similar in sound it's like well, we've just been doing it this way since the beginning. Uh, so I don't know. There's, yeah, I, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if there, there's going to be some different approaches in the future. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, certainly I hope so. And I mean, you guys are certainly leading the charge here with your stuff. <laughs> I think it's cool. Um, so um, what's next? Sleep? <laughs> sleep? Sleep sounds pretty good. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think we're both still getting back on our feet after the project. So yeah. it's a little hard to, to think about next yet. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. I think, I think Hank's pretty spot on. I mean, I've, I'm having lots of ideas and I'm sketching them down, but I'm trying to keep them small and equally, I just, I don't, I'm not ready to, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to collaborate with other people that in which, I'm kind of fall marching to someone else's tune, you know. Right. I, I'd love to just be a smaller cog and not, you know, because all all three of us were making so many decisions that had profound effects on the game and the planning and the money and our general mood. That I'd I'd love to work on a on a project where myself or we are not are not doing that. So I think in the short term, something like that would be fun. And then who knows? Maybe much smaller projects in the future. Yeah, definitely. And, I think I think we. Oh, sorry. Were you gonna say? No, something? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I think I think we both have a very different understanding of game scope than we did three years ago, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. having, having gone through that process. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it really emphasizes, it's like, you want to keep your ideas as small as possible, because if you want to, if you want to make something that's good, um, that's like sort of completely, uh, that's, that you can really complete, you need to keep it so small that, yeah. that it's, it's very surprising. It's very surprising how large projects get so easily, and it's also very surprising how big of a, an emotional impact working on long projects can, can have on you. So I'd, that's true, I'd yeah. agree. Love. Yeah. Definitely shorter projects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it sounds... Uh, it sounds after a three-year ordeal that is it's definitely the way to go, but I really do agree and um, reiterate to the listeners about scope. I mean, there's so many times you go in, and specifically when I look at student projects, the guys are like, and I've got this MMO that's even bigger than an MMO. We're going to do it in two weekends. It's going to be amazing. And I'm like, guys, that's, yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's it's very easy to forget. Um you have you have a list of features, and the features look like they're going to take a certain amount of time to complete. But it's very easy to overlook all the features that are required between those features to make them sort of hold together. Yeah, yeah. Um, were there any other challenges in Unity um, besides the audio? Yeah, sure. I'll. Uh... <laughs> I, I hope our Unity rep doesn't hear me say this, but the asset server cost us, I'd say, several weeks of. Uh... Several weeks of uh, man hours. That uh, that was a uh, that was horrible. Uh, yeah. So that's that's the one thing that I think above all. You know, every software has its flaws. Every software has its strengths. But man, that asset server. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I could. I can't recommend stronger any other version control system. Yeah. All right. Did you guys um, end up using Git? Um... We were too far in the project, and so we just sort of limped along and. Uh, like we're incredibly careful because cer- certain assets, if you committed them, would crash everyone else's computer, Ooh, and and these are like rough. standard Unity assets and stuff. And anyway, but okay, rant over. Uh, I'm trying to think. Was there was there well, was I there mean, any other big challenges? I think I think uh, just in connection with the scope issues that we had, uh, we gradually pushed um, our world larger and larger and larger. Hmm. And uh, at a certain point, we uh, we reached a point where we couldn't uh, easily uh, split that up. So I think I think there were some unity limits that we were really kind of running into, uh, sort of like hidden walls that you know grow past a certain point. You start you start uh, having little bits of water leak through different parts of the ship, and it's uh, <laughs> uh, quite a bit of time patching those up. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's very true. Yeah, yeah. and that's that's partly our. I mean, that's. That's mostly our fault, but it was it was uh, a little hard to see it coming because right. some of those limits are 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 not very uh, signposted. Um, are you are you able to go into detail just um, uh, just to help anybody who's listening uh, to be aware of those things? Yeah, I mean, just basically as you as you work in a scene in Unity, as you add more objects, you add more renders, you add more scripts. Um, there are certain aspects of that overhead that you can control. So. So just by, by scripting in very carefully ways, avoiding using uh, update functions as much as possible. Like most of the most of the modern behaviors we have in our scenes don't update every frame at all, right. uh, and they only react to other events. And so you're able to keep the processing speed very very sort of lightweight there. Right. 
But there are other aspects of the Unity scene, uh, specifically like the, the physics engine and the renderer, uh, start. Um, th there are certain points where more than a certain number of objects and certain subsystems in those end up uh, um, representing a pretty significant amount of your of your processing speed. And those are those are issues that are much more difficult to deal with, uh, right. aside from simply um, using smaller scenes. So that was that was a big thing that if we'd I think if we'd been more aware of those issues at the beginning, we would have made some decisions differently. Right. Uh, but as it was, we just had to um, kind of like uh, do our best to uh, ameliorate as many of those issues as we could. So yeah. just being very, very careful, looking at the profiler, looking at where are the overheads coming from, doing sort of experiments, figure out uh, what you're doing that's causing that overhead because it's not always clear. Um, but yeah, just a lot of things... Um, became uh, more difficult than they otherwise would have been because of sort of the scope of what we were doing, I think. Right. Yeah, I think that, yeah, I think Hank put that pretty well. I, I just want to maybe put another spin on it. I mean, a lot of it was also, um, I don't have a formal, like, game development training background. So a lot of our world design and our kind of... Um, kind of our choice for designing this world just came from, well, we want the world to be this way because that's how it will feel. Um, but there were considerations that we weren't really taking into account. Um, and like Hank said, they kind of crept up on us. And then it's like, oh, well, we've already built this world and it's huge. And we're not really doing any dynamic, we're not doing like dynamic scene loading, partly because of our audio tech wouldn't really support that. So we ended up not really using occlusion systems, but kind of rolling our own sort of uh, like optimization systems that I don't know whether they're as good or cruder or better, but it just, it just, yeah, it just sort of, we ended up, yeah, the, the scope, the, the scene was incredibly large that right. everything was in and it made, it made editing it uh, quite precarious and uh, occasionally like slow. So, right. yeah. 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 I mean, like, for, for one, just one example, uh, uh, Unity supports both, like, binary serialization and text serialization for assets. And right. the text is much more, like, convenient to work with in a lot of cases. Right. But we actually found that we weren't able to use it because um, it it ballooned a lot of the project really, really far. And, and in text serialization, I remember, I think, saving our main scene took about 30 seconds. Is that, is that, am I remembering that right, Richard? That sounds... It sounds. I think it was worse than that, honestly. But yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was bad. Yeah. yeah. So. So yeah. Um, yeah. Just add add that in. All right. So is um, the biggest rule of thumb just to break up the scene a little bit more, or? Um, I don't yeah. know if you can say that for every project, but I mean, if it makes yeah. sense for your project, go for it. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's the thing. Is. Uh, like I mean, splitting apart uh, the game world is not just sort of a technical job. It's very much a has to be a part of the design as well. And yeah. so there's certain kinds of games where that'll work extremely well for. I mean, that's why we have so many games that are indoors, right? right. It's so easy to <laughs> partition them into into rooms that it just it works very well with the technology. Um, if you're doing kind of a bigger open world game where you have objects that influence each other from a fair distance apart, right? Uh, it becomes very difficult to. Um, like it, it's no longer a technical job to split that apart. Uh, it becomes something that you have to incorporate into the design. And I think uh, that just sort of wasn't the way we were designing at the beginning of the project. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, we were designing something very interconnected and like where small kind of changes in one space affect concatenate into other spaces in the game, which is cool, but equally it's, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it, it, it did, uh, yeah, it had its yeah, set of challenges. Yeah, we made our, we made our jobs a little hard. <laughs> well, you got your game out, man. Well done. Yeah. Um, for UI and 2D stuff, what did you guys use? So there's, uh, yeah. there's actually pretty much no 2D UI in the game. Uh, so, I mean, when you're when you're exploring the world, all of the user interfaces take the form of physical objects in the space. Right. So as you go into that other mode, you kind of like get this the screen view that overlays on top of these holograms that you can manipulate. So all of those are two are uh, are, th- are full 3D objects. Right. And we have some some custom code that manages like um, compositing the down properly and like sort of animating them in and dealing with uh, like the, the cursor stuff uh, only in that in that context. Right. Um, the the game menus. Uh, I mean, Richard put the put the game menus menus together, but they're also uh, um, they're implemented a bit differently. But they're also three D objects. So yeah, it was all um, it was all custom scripted three D objects. Wow! Oh, excellent. Um, yeah, if if you guys could take what you know now, right? Plus, you had two months worth of sleep and a Caribbean vacation, and you came back all super refreshed and um, you could do this project again uh, from scratch. What were the what would be the major things you would change? I think uh, I think probably design around our technical limitations. Yeah, um, I think it would have a it would have a big effect on the sort of stuff we we made. But I think it would probably make our lives a lot easier. Yeah, I think there could be some sort of compromises for scale or field of view or what happened, whatever kind of the feeling of the space. And right. I think those compromises, while we feel like they might be huge, I think uh, that they could have a better kind of, like they could help us within our technical restrictions. And I think while we perceive them as huge, I think that a, a gamer probably wouldn't, wouldn't notice those compromises as much. I think from a design perspective, mm-hmm. how everything's plugged in and how everything reacts, I think I think it would be nice to, to have kept I think doing it again, I think we would probably do something more or less like that. But yeah, I think being working from work instead of working up to our design or up to our technical restrictions, it'd probably be better to work know what those are. I mean, how can you? But yeah, I know I think Hank nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Basically. Yeah. I think we just we just have a better idea of what the feel of those technical restrictions are now. So when we're when we're going through the design process, it's much easier to navigate that. It's much easier to kind of like stay within safe boundaries so that you can reliably predict what you are and are going to be able to do. Right, right. Yeah. And and some of that just comes from experience using a set of tools. Yeah. Yep. Um, if you had some things to request from the uh, the Unity folks uh, in another version of Unity or whatever, uh, what would it be that you guys would request <laughs> besides a new asset server or just them to dump the whole credit? Um, so they showed this really cool like nested prefab system uh, uh, a couple of years ago yes, in a talk. Yes, yes. Uh, I really would look forward to that. <laughs> I can't, I can't count the number of the number of incredibly different workarounds we have for the lack of uh, the lack of that kind of uh, that kind of nesting. Yeah, I yeah, know, man. That would be that would be that would be huge. Yeah, that would be huge. 
Did you guys ever have workflow issues where somebody was stomping somebody else's changes or anything like that? Because I find that's the biggest reason. Like, you've got two ways to get good workflows. Either you break up your scene into multiple scenes and a person will work on a scene at a time, or you break up the assets within your scene into prefabs and somebody will work on a prefab at a time. Um, we, yeah. uh, we didn't have a lot of that, partly because I think Hank's in my roles just because of the skills we have are actually pretty separate. Um, but we definitely had sort of custom scenes set up, these sort of gyms set up where we, we would test test scenarios um, and then and then bring this stuff into the main scene. Um, but not a, not a ton of, uh, not, a, not very much conflicts. I mean, part of that is because we're a small team, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that our roles were largely pretty separate in the workflow of of the yeah. game. I think yeah. uh there was a little while where it took us it took us some time to figure out exactly the way that Unity handled these different assets. Um but yeah once once we kinda got a handle of how the how scenes save, how prefabs save, like what what is the behavior when you change a prefab in one scene, what does it, what does it do in the other scene? Uh we were able to get a pretty good workflow going. Because I mean uh Richard for the most part was working in the scenes and I was working uh, usually in scripts and sometimes in prefabs. Right. So if you're if you're careful with the way that you save those out, uh, you can you can pretty easily like safely work in a prefab while someone is working in the scene that 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 prefab is in. Right. Yeah, but I mean that just takes a lot of practice. I don't know that I've ever seen a single document that kind of um, kind of indicates a best practice for yeah. that. I mean. Right. Once you get it, you can be really smooth. I mean, in the last few months of uh, of editing, I discovered that even if you're inside a prefab in a scene that has any custom changes or what have you, you can hit the select button in that sort of inspector, and then the, that actually selects that subcomponent within the the prefab and not not that prefab. So yeah. even though in the hierarchy you can't actually drill down, let's say, more than two uh, two levels inside a prefab, but if you hit select, you can drill down twenty as far as you want, yeah. and then so change all those yeah. prefabs. Like I hadn't seen yeah. that anywhere. I discovered that by accident, mm. and yeah. um, it's a yeah, huge, it's, it's incredibly huge time saver. You know, so yeah, yeah. like it's kind of odd because you 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 go deep down into the prefab in the scene, you hit select, and then it gives you all the feedback saying you've just selected something in the hierarchy, but you can't see anything selected. It takes a bit of figuring out to be like, oh, no, I actually have the asset that I cannot see selected, and I can modify it here. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds, yeah, that sounds, sounds awesome. I don't think anybody knows that. That's a great little tidbit. Um, yeah. Uh, is there, how, how do people find your game? It's, uh, well, it's, fract, yeah, fractgame.com is our site, and we've got, Links there to our dev blog and uh, where to buy it and what have you. Um, and uh, at Fract Game, that's uh, us on Twitter. And that's that's the game. Um, and um, uh, I guess for us, uh, I'm at Phosphine, P-H-O-S-F-I-E-N-D on Twitter. And Alex isn't here, but at, at Mogi Grumbles, who's our composer, can be found on uh on um, on Twitter and on his uh, Bandcamp, if people want to pick up the album and Hank. Yep, and I'm uh, at Hank Bohm, so 
uh, H-E-N-K-B-O-O-M. Uh, that's me on Twitter. That's a great last name, dude. <laughs> well excellent it was uh it was really great chatting to you guys thank you so much for your time and um i hope you the best of success with your game thanks a lot yeah, yeah thanks a lot for having us excellent stuff he's like why it's a fucking black box of stupidity but